Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for choosing us to listen to today. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to listen to our past episodes, they're all piled up at thenexttrack.com. And if you want to keep in touch with us throughout the week, we do have a Twitter account, at NextTrackCast, where we uh, tweet about stuff that we're interested in, stuff that's related to the show. This is episode number 129 of The Next Track. We've talked about this in the past, music discovery. It can be a daunting task when you've got millions of songs in front of you and, and no particular direction to go in. It can be particularly difficult if you are a person who wants to understand classical music better. And that's where our next guest comes in. Uh, he is a musician, professional violinist with the Richmond Symphony. He's a music teacher, and he has a website called The Listener's Club. His name is Timothy Judd. Tim, it's great to meet you. Thanks for being on the show. It's really great to be here. Tim, one of our listeners sent me an email a few weeks ago and said I should definitely check out your website. And we talk about classical music a fair amount on this podcast. I've been a classical music fan for decades. But we've never looked at classical music in a sort of big picture, overarching manner. And, and what you do on your website, The Listener's Club, is you have hundreds of articles about different pieces, records, composers, etc. What was your motivation for setting up this website? So, uh, so I'm a violinist in the Richmond Symphony here in Richmond, Virginia, and I... Uh have a large, relatively large studio. I have young, very young students, older students, and I teach the Suzuki method, Suzuki violin. And in talking to my students, I realized that that often some of these pieces that are so great, and uh, they had never heard these pieces before. And that was my motivation to start the Listener's Club. When did you start playing violin? Did you start as a young child? I, I started when I was four years old, through the Suzuki method, I actually started with one of the people that brought the Suzuki method to the United States, Anastasia Gemplis of the Eastman School of Music. I um, started through the preparatory division there. And um, the Suzuki method is basically based on, on building the ear, the sense of taking very young students and uh, they're listening to music from a very early age. They learn through listening to the music. So before they read any notes they're they're listening to music and the sense of of building how the sound how it sounds from the very beginning from the first uh, notes that they play and i teach now that method as well as um, more advanced students my youngest student uh, is two years old they make violins that small well in the beginning we start with these little box violins and uh, and then they do make violins in different sizes. Because I've seen quarter size, but for a two-year-old, that's really tiny. Has to be very small and and building up. But it, but that listening is is the fundamental thing with the Suzuki method. The idea that you learn to um, you don't learn to read um, words before you learn to talk. So you uh, you're you're listening to music, and that's how you you sort of develop that sense of music. That every single person has the ability has the ability to. It's, there's no such thing really as talent. Everyone has the ability to to uh, play music beautifully and and relate to music. I've always uh, kind of admired the Suzuki method, even though I don't know a lot of the details about it. But it reminds me of how I came to music as a kid. Both of my parents. We're musicians, and we had musical instruments all over the house and music playing all the time, and we would just pick these things up and try to make them go. And that's how we learned about music. We'd 
later records that we liked. And it, the Suzuki method just seems like a very naturalistic way of introducing someone to music using their own innate talent already and, and discipline. That's right. Yeah. And it, and it takes away the sense of kind of um, mechanical approach that you might get if you were just looking at the note, putting the finger down and, and playing. It has to go through the ear. And those of us who are professionals who read music, and of course the students do eventually learn to read music, um, we, uh, we have that process where it goes into our ear, we see it, it goes into our mind, and, and then we play. So the, the students that I teach, you know, in the conversations that I had with them, I realized that I would say something about a Mahler symphony or a piece that I really was passionate about or something we were playing in the Richmond Symphony on a particular week. And they really, they had never encountered that music. They had never listened to it. And that was my motivation to start the Listeners Club, which is a blog that I've done since 2011. Uh, I do three posts a week. And you could call most of it, it's classical music. But I put in some rock, I put in some jazz. It's basically anything that really grabs my ear, that I hear something that really, that I'm really interested in, that, that really grabs my ear that I think um, uh, somebody should, should hear. I guess I'm a little bit of a curator of that music. A, a couple of years ago, early on in the podcast, we had Alex Ross, the New Yorker music critic on the show. And I opened by asking him a very simple question. How do you define classical music? And that's a very interesting question because, of course, record labels define it a certain way, you know, uh, orchestral music or concert music. But I think what you really could say is that it's, it's the music that is, is part of the canon. It's, it's the music that has stood the test of time. And uh, in that regard, I mean, the Beatles could be obviously considered classical music. The Grateful Dead could be considered classical music. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, a rock band that I I love also. Yeah. Yep. We've talked about them several times on the yeah. show. We're we're both prog rock fans from the seventies. But the definition of classical music tends to be so restrictive, doesn't it? It it kind of separates. You know, you're playing in a symphony orchestra where they have to they have a subscription season. They have to play Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and all that. But there's all this other stuff on the fringes. I mean. People like Philip Glass and Steve Reich, they're now considered part of the canon, but it wasn't long ago that they were only playing in alternative performance space. That's right, and it seems like recently there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, combination of genres of what you would consider classical music. Uh, I think probably earlier in the 20th century, everything moved sort of into the... Um, 12-tone style of composition, and there was really that separation. But the exciting thing that we see now with, with Steve Reich and Philip Glass and, and uh, the sense of uh, genres kind of melting away. Yeah. I'm just looking at your, your website right now, and you start with a new release by Vikinger Olofsson playing Bach. You follow up with a piece about George Crumb's Black Angels, then eight pieces based on the Dies Irae, which is a a part of the, the Catholic Mass, am I correct? That's right. That's the, the, the Day of Wrath, the uh, chant, which is in a lot of classical music. I mean, it comes back, you hear it in uh, the last movement of Symphony Fantastique by Berlioz, which is an incredibly dramatic piece. And it comes back throughout music. And it's interesting, this little thread that comes in there. 
anytime a composer wants to evoke something, uh, a dark side of... of and, and that's one of the interesting things often about classical music. And, you know, we have the feeling that classical music is the romantic concept of the composer in the garret with syphilis and, you know, just working on their own. But they are often bringing in phrases and, and melodies from other composers. Um, you know, Mozart couldn't be Mozart without Bach and Mahler couldn't be Mahler without Schubert. And there, there is this relationship over time. But on the other hand, this can be really frustrated for people who want to discover classical music, that they feel like there's so much to there's so much to learn. They feel like they have to be educated. And I've always been against that, the idea that you need an education to appreciate classical music. And, and that's absolutely right. You know, I, what I do with my blog, there will be some biographical information. But in the end, it's really the music that stands on its, on its own. It's, it's uh, these composers really, um, you were mentioning the influences, and they're definitely there. I mean, if you listen to Beethoven, you can hear Haydn, a lot of Haydn. Yeah, especially early Beethoven. Yeah. yeah, and of course, Haydn was Beethoven's teacher, and and then, of course, Bach was was really considered the teacher of all of them. With, yes. with, but the interesting thing is there's, there's a lot of mystery, I think, also to, to where this music comes from. I, I think, uh, you know, there was a story where Mahler looked down at the score after he had written something and he, he said I don't know where that came from and and I think that mystery of of uh, I think all of us it's a relationship that we have with the music and so it's not important how much you know about the music it's it's always interesting to open up the door sometimes that way uh, it, it gives you a little bit of something and, and that's what I try to do in my posts I take a little something that I hear in the piece or maybe a little bit of information about the composer. But in the end, it's really the music that stands on its own. Uh, and it's our relationship that we have with that music. And it's very mysterious. As I said, with, with Mahler, you know, Sibelius wrote music for a good part of his life. And then all of a sudden, after seven symphonies, uh, could not complete an eighth. And somehow that was just... And drank up. a lot. And he drank a lot, yeah. And, and I think he... <laughs> apparently drank to try to to try to help it but at a certain point uh it just he knew that what he was writing was not it was no longer that thing from somewhere else so i've been listening to classical music since i was a teenager my my parents had a few records in the house they had i don't know a, a record of famous marches and they had a phil oaks record and some tom Lehrer and stuff but they didn't have a lot of classical music and i kind of discovered it through friends Fortunately, I had friends who had a wide variety of musical tastes, but it was always kind of piecemeal. You hear one thing. I remember the first time I heard Schubert's Winterheiser. That totally changed my world. I remember the first time I heard Steve Reich or the first time I heard Bach's Art of Fugue. These are all things that changed my world, and I'm curious enough to have wanted to go further. But I think it's hard for people who don't know a lot about classical music to take those steps. You can listen to the radio that there are classical radio stations, and if you don't have one locally, you can stream them. But even that, uh, I, I don't particularly care for the schmaltzy romantic um, concertos, not a big opera fan. So when something comes on that I don't like, that turns me off. It must be difficult for people trying to discover this music to not get turned off by certain types of things. Well, I think the difficulty might be, it, this is music that really requires attention, 
It's it's not. I think you had a really excellent uh, podcast a few weeks ago, maybe on background music that I that I enjoyed. Yes, music and background music. Yeah, music and and of course that's all around us now. And but the difficult thing is this really requires attention. I mean, it really requires that you that you bring yourself to it, that you listen to it, and and open yourself up to it in that way. Uh, and 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 then you sort of get that benefit. But uh, it's not something you can, you, you really have to give it your attention. Yeah, and unfortunately, the record labels are marketing classical music now as something you can drop in a playlist. You know, the third movement of the second Brandenburg Concerto comes after some little ditty by Mozart and before, you know, um, um, a Verdi aria or something. And they're just throwing it together in a way that it's totally decontextualized. And that kind of commoditizes classical music to be just enough music to be in the background. And, you know, when you look on the streaming services, they have all these playlists, classical music for studying, classical music for relaxation, because they really like to say that classical music is relaxing. Of course, the people who make those playlists, they don't listen to Charles Ives. Classical music for elevators. And, you know, that, that, that's like the epitome of, of them not creating the audience of the future. I don't know how it is in, in Richmond, but I'm in the UK and I'm near Birmingham and I go to some concerts up there. Last year, Murray Pariah came to play Beethoven's Emperor Piano Concerto and a Beethoven Symphony, and the hall was half empty. This was the Symphony Hall holds 2,000 people. The new generation isn't even getting entire works, and how will they be able to consume this music in the future? Well, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I started the blog, uh, but I think it's education. I mean, I think it's, it's being around it from an early age and, and really hearing this music and in the end, it's it's not a commodity because I think if you put there's certain music you could put on in an elevator and not listen to, but I think if you put maybe the Eroica, Beethoven Third Symphony, or or the Rite of Spring on, I think that's going to demand your your attention. You wouldn't leave the elevator. You wouldn't leave the elevator. <laughs> Just to say you'd be going up and down for a while, and you wouldn't want to necessarily listen to that music while you were eating dinner. You know. I think I think it, it, there's certain music you just wouldn't want to hear when you're eating dinner. You 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 there's certain music that just is demanding your attention. It is unfortunate that you need to have there's there's a degree of separation. You have to know a little bit in order to learn a little bit more. For instance, um, I am not as much of a classical enthusiast as Kirk is, but when I first went to your site after he said let's have a look at the site. At least in every title, I said, well, I recognize that name. Oh, I know that kind of music. Oh, I know that composer. I know that artist. So there was enough for me to say, there's enough here for me to to look at and learn a little bit more. But I've got a fairly decent background. I mean, I've got a very broad background in music. So it's very easy for me to like that. And I'm wondering how, where, at what point do we capture younger listeners? How, how with, do you get people past that first hurdle? I, yeah. I, I'm sure that, you know, the music that I listened to as a kid around the house was part of it. But where do, where does the music education come from if they're not going to get it from friends, relatives, the radio? That kind or school. Of I think it has to come from school. And, and I think it's, it's, it's sort of um, the culture sort of drives it out right now. This is driving it out. It's, it's a, you know, something that, that we need to work on, bringing it back. And, and uh, what I'm trying to do, of course, with my students but uh, I don't know if you, if I think most people have had an experience of maybe um, 
maybe a piece of music where they hear it on hear it on the radio or hear it and they just go and listen to it again and again and again. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It's you don't really need to know so much. You just need to keep your ears open and be receptive to the to uh, developing the relationship. In that regard, it's funny. When I was a kid, we used to watch Warner Brothers cartoons, and I don't know how many times you would hear classical themes or even whole classical works, the Hungarian Rhapsody. How many times was that used as an animation for you know cats chasing mice or what, whatever was going on? Or Bugs Bunny, I think, also has a Hungarian Rhapsody. And so when you hear it on the cartoon and then you hear it in, in some other context outside, you say, hey, I know that. Yeah. Um, but you don't you just don't even get exposed to that kind of peripheral classical music anymore. It's not even it's part not even part of our vocabulary. It's 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 uh, there definitely is a, a sense of uh, being isolated from uh but of course you hear film scores. I think John Williams has done a tremendous amount for, uh, for classical music. And of course, if you go back in those scores, you're hearing Gustav Hall's The Planets, you're hearing so many composers uh, in that orchestration and in those themes uh, that he's, he's referencing. But do people really consider that to be classical music or just music with an orchestra? When it's a film score like a Star Wars film score? Yeah, I think, I mean, of course, we don't know. We don't know 100 years from now, you know, whether that will be, uh, and it's definitely music that is, that is, has excellent craftsmanship and draws upon all these other, this, this legacy of, of, of music. But, uh, yeah, but we don't know, I don't think. So in the Richmond Symphony, you play all kinds of music. You play what we would call the, the classical classics. And, and of course, some people may not know classical music, actually, the, the term comes from that period around Mozart, which is considered to be the classical period after Baroque, before Romanticism. So you're playing the classic classics, the V's, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, and all that. But you're also playing more contemporary music, aren't you? That's right. And of course, there's a pop series. There's there's small orchestra concerts. There's, there's a wide variety. And I think um, the one interesting thing, and I think it may have been Leonard Bernstein, I'm not sure, I shouldn't say who said this, but somebody said there are two types of music. There's good music and bad music. I think it was Leonard Bernstein, and, and we're seeing a lot about him because it's the 100th anniversary of his birth this year. And I noticed that you have a tag cloud at the bottom of your website, which shows the tags that you've used the most. And the ones that are the largest are Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. And next one is Leonard Bernstein. So you've been writing a lot about Lenny this year, haven't you? A lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, Post some the centennial, yeah. The the music world kind of misses someone like him because when I was young, he had his young person's concerts and, and he was on TV a lot and, and he crossed genres, you know, look at West Side Story and look at some of the ballet music he, he wrote and all that. There's no one like that today, is there? I don't think so. I think, um, you know, Michael Tilson Thomas has done some great things, but I think if you look at those young people's concerts, I mean, the thing that Bernstein did so well he never talked down to the audience. It was it was always um, you know he treated the audience with great respect, and and his passion for the music really came out. Yeah, you you could you could feel it. You could feel that he was that he was a natural educator, but you, it didn't even seem like education when you watched him. It seemed like. He was just talking. He just happened to have an orchestra there to, to talk to you with. <laughs> he was just talking and telling you about the music he liked. And and I wonder how much that's missing, too, that it's harder for people to just talk about the music they like. We, we try to do it in our own way on this podcast. 
most of the music that I've learned to appreciate throughout my life, whether it's classical or other, has been because friends have said, oh, this music is really great. You know, it's that sort of, it's that sort of peer exchange of, of musical interest that turns people on. And do we get that anymore in this, in this period of rapid consumption? I mean, we can access all of the music recorded by any of the great composers with two clicks right now, but there's just too much to choose from even. That's right. And, uh, it seems like there's been a shift to independent media, like maybe what you're doing and what I'm doing. Um, if you went back to the 60s, I mean, you saw Leonard Bernstein on public television uh, or even not on public television even, but I think before that on CBS, right? Yeah, CBS ran those programs, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, but even They were on, very into the arts. They were a very, very arts-oriented network at the time. In the 60s. At the time, with yeah. the New York Philharmonic concerts. Yeah. Uh, and, and now it seems like as probably as the corporate takeover of, of even PBS uh, has happened, everything is going more into the independent, independent media, which I guess is kind of happening with news also. But you were mentioning a, a, a friend telling you about a piece. And the one thing that gives me great pleasure with the blog is if I get the sense that somebody, they say, I've never heard that piece before until I heard it on your on your website. And nowadays it's easy to hear, whereas back in when I was young, I had to buy the records in most cases, or just happened to get on WQXR at the right time when they were playing it, which was pretty rare. It's interesting, you mentioned Michael Tilson Thomas, and one of my great revelations in music was, I believe it was 1982, I just accidentally turned on the TV and caught the very beginning of an hour-long documentary by Michael Tilson Thomas about Carl Ruggles. And I had never heard music like that before in my life. And anyone who hasn't listened to Carl Ruggles, go to your favorite streaming service and look up a piece called Sun Treader. And it just blew me away to discover something that obscure. Uh, you're writing it down. You don't I'm know Sun Treader. I don't know that piece. I, I've heard the name of the composer, but I'm not familiar with that piece. Ah, well, Carl Ruggles, think of Charles Ives, even more intense. They were friends, and, and I've supported Ruggles. You know, Ives was, was very wealthy, and he supported Ruggles. Ruggles wrote a total of about two hours of music. It was recently, at, at the time of this documentary, Tilson Thomas had released a two-LP set on Columbia of his complete music, and it went out of print. It wasn't on CD until a few years ago. Some independent label picked it up and, and republished it. It's some of the most fascinating music. It, it's harsh. It's, it's Charles Ives on, on drugs, almost. And and it was just the odd confluence of circumstances that led me to discover this music on a mono TV, but something that just spoke so loud, so impressively. And that doesn't happen anymore. You know, I'm I'm here in the UK and the BBC has their prom series of concerts and every once in a while I put one on and it's boring. It's the same old Brahms and Beethoven. And I love Beethoven's piano symphonies and string quartets, but you know, I've heard them. It's nothing new. So it's hard to get that sort of shock of new music. Well, I'll definitely check that out. Um, it is, it is. I mean, the new music, I think, is so important to, to hear. The, the old pieces, though, you have to go back and, and keep listening, I think, and, and just kind of uh, and build that relationship. I think, uh, you know, we hear the same pieces over and over again, and I, if, I guess there would be a danger of them sort of being played the same way, but of course they'll never be played exactly the same way. They're, they're well, it's also important, I think, to hear this music performed live too. Recordings are fine, mm -hmm. but I think you know that you 
you want to hear the popular classics because the reason they're so popular is because they sound good. And the only way you can hear them sound played well and is, is if you hear them perform live. That's how they were meant to be heard. You know, they didn't, you know, Brahms didn't think about having, uh, you know, his stuff recorded and what kind of record deals he was going to have. It's just there's the piece. And uh, so I think it's important to, to hear the, the same stuff over and over again. But on the other hand, it's also got to lead to it should it should lead you to critical listening of other types of music. That's right. And, and keeping an ear out for, for just, in a certain sense, getting rid of categories. I think uh, great music is great music, and, and it can be everything from Brahms to, um, to yes. And, and if, that, if there's something there that really grabs your attention, that's, that's the important thing. You know, and concerts, absolutely concerts, uh, live concert experience is so important. Uh, the lights go down and it's framed. I think it's a social experience, but in the end, it's still a personal experience. You're still, it's your personal interaction with that music. Uh, I kind of wonder sometimes, and I don't know what you think about this, that, that uh, the, we're starting to get more uh, used to listening with headphones and how that really impacts yeah. our experience. Uh, you know, when you go back and you think about it, in Brahms' time or or uh, Beethoven, their experience was completely an acoustic experience. Yeah. The other interesting thing is, though, with a recording, even though it's the same recording, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of you perceive it different ways. If you listen, if you listen to a different time of day, if you're tired or energetic, if you're drinking wine or coffee, it's true. It does sound different. And and how interested or you hearing are hearing it on a different system. I've heard I've heard things played at friends' houses that sound remarkably different than the way they sound at my house. And it's been, you know, dramatic sometimes. Just by or in the coming. car, even in the car, mm -hmm. the car in the house sound different. Yeah, the car is tough for, for classical music. I know, you, right. I, yeah. the, <laughs> the car is made for podcasts and rock music like The Clash and things like that. So so Tim, <laughs> just before we finish Pick three works of classical music that people who don't know classical music should check out. Oh, that's very difficult because uh, there's so well, many. Of course it is. We don't ask easy <laughs> questions here. Just pick three. Well, I would say uh, Mahler's Second Symphony would be one of them, the Resurrection Symphony. The Beethoven Eroica, which is a piece that, that sounds still modern, very modern. It has tremendous dissonance in the first movement. There's just some some... Some moments in that, that that just sound as if they could have been written now. Uh, I would have to say for three, something by Mozart, Mozart's last symphony, the final movement, which combines all these these different motives. It's interesting that you picked three orchestral works, that you didn't pick, say, Bach's Goldberg Variations or Schubert's Winterreise or... A violin sonata, because because you're an orchestral musician, so you think more of that. And I think a lot of people consider that classical music is more the orchestra, whereas in, in I'm not a big fan of orchestral music. I find the intimacy of chamber music and solo music more personal, more compelling. Orchestral music is a gateway drug. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it sounds very familiar because you hear it in soundtracks and things like that. So it's I think it's easier. It's the idea of, of what would expose people to, to this kind of music. Yeah. But I think I think picking orchestral pieces is probably a good base because you will run into a, uh, a cadenza or you will run into a solo thing in one of these larger orchestral pieces. And that might lead you into other pl other places. And of course, there's so much the the. 
violin sonatas of Brahms. Chamber music is is obviously a new area, you know. Okay, Tim, thanks very much. We're going to have a link in the show notes to the Listener's Club, and by all means, check it out. Three articles a week. If you're interested in learning more about classical music, check it out every week. Tim's articles explain a bit about the music, but also include YouTube videos so you can listen to some of the music without having to go search for it on your favorite streaming service. Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much. It was great being here. All right, let's do that next track thing that we do. Kirk, what have you got? Amazon delivers here on Sunday sometimes. We're recording on Monday afternoon, and yesterday I got a delivery of some new CDs. I almost hurt my back. This is the new Bach 333 set that was released by Universal Records. 222 CDs, one DVD, three books, plus a whole bunch of little booklets with notes and sung texts and all that. Why did I buy 222 CDs of Bach? when I already have all of his complete works, and you can get them all on the streaming services anyway. When Universal announced this back in July, I was really quite impressed that here we are with 280 hours of music, 750 performers, 32 record labels. Every time there had been a previous complete Bach edition, and there were several released around 2000 for the 250th anniversary of his death, it was all a single label. And what Universal did is they, they got not only their own labels, Deca Phillips, Deutsche Gramophone, but other labels. And they have composed an interesting collection with recordings from the 30s and the 40s, recordings from this year and last year, multiple recordings of different works. So you can hear some of the keyboard works on piano and other recordings on harpsichord multiple recordings of the, the Passions and the, the Mass in B minor, the Brandenburg Concertos. It's a fascinating approach. The The previous complete editions, I think they're around 175, 180 discs. So here you've got roughly 40 discs more of of extra stuff of different versions. Usually I'm the kind of completist who wants, say, all the cantatas by a single conductor. Whereas here, I think there are four or five different conductors and they alternate. And I just think this is a wonderful way to explore music. You know, we talked in this episode about hearing works over and over or hearing works by different people. And, and I think this is a really, really interesting way to delve into Bach. Yes, I own all his stuff. Yes, it was very heavy, and I did almost hurt myself, but that's my latest acquisition. And I think I'll be listening to that next week, and the week after, and the week after that, and the week after that. Doug, what about you? Tony Joe White passed away a little more than a, a week or so ago on October 24th. You may know Tony Joe White as the American singer-songwriter with the hit Poke Salad Annie, which was popular in the late 60s. I didn't pay much attention to Tony Joe White after that, although I have to admit, when I was a little kid, I really liked that song. I mean, it was a pretty cool song about a girl who lives in the swamps and whose daddy uh, couldn't work because he busted his back and gators ate her granny and her mother worked on a chain gang. So it was kind of an interesting sort of song. Later on, when I got into swamp music, I heard the name Tony Joe White a lot more frequently, but I didn't listen to him that much. If you don't know what Swamp Rock is, I think the epitome of all Swamp Rock is Creedence Clearwater Revival's Susie Q. It has all the elements a Swamp Rock song has. This sort of Cajun-y, bluesy, folky, voodoo even, and almost menacing sort of a sound to it. Tony Joe White perfected Swamp Rock throughout his years. And as I said, I wasn't paying much attention to him. But as it happens, I was listening to uh, Radio France last week, and they spent some time doing a retrospective of Tony Joe White. 
and they played an interview that they did with him in 2013 when his album Hoodoo came out, and he played a couple of cuts from it and did a small interview. And I said, okay, I got to check this album out. So that's the album I'm listening to. And I have to say, I am really impressed. I mean, not that I wouldn't be. I expected to be impressed because Tony Joe White is, is famous for this, this kind of music. Uh, I haven't listened to the whole album yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really surprised that he was able to maintain this persona and, and, and develop this kind of music over the past 40, 50 years that, that I haven't been listening to him. He essentially did the same kind of music all the time. Uh, he wrote about people who lived in the swamp or around the swamp or in Louisiana or Georgia or Tennessee or places like that. A thing I didn't know is that he wrote a couple of songs for Tina Turner in the in the 80s. He wrote um, Rainy Night in Georgia, which Brooke Benton had a big hit with. Uh, he was friends with Mark Knopfler and Eric Clapton. Mark Knopfler greatly influenced by that kind of American music. I think you could even argue that Money for Nothing, the Dire Straits song, is a swamp rock song. Just think about how that riff goes. And after listening to a couple of cuts on this album, I I'm really I'm, I'm ashamed of myself that I didn't pay more attention to Tony Joe White while he was alive and recording. Of course, that just means I have a whole treasure trove of music to go back to. And I'm starting with this one. Tony Joe White, Hoodoo, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.